Hello, you're listening to the Women of the Field podcast. In today's episode, I'll be talking about the criteria that makes a civilization a civilization, the oldest known civilization, and the extraordinary life of Gertrude Bell. the podcast. This is your host, Mackenzie Edmonds. I wanted to start today by discussing the criteria for a civilization. I'm going to try not to get too into theory, but I think it's important to first talk about why some large groups of people in the past were called civilizations while others weren't. Brief disclaimer here, I'm in no way an expert on any topic I discuss here, but I've done research and will link those sources in the description if you're interested in checking them out. Thanks for joining me today. The criteria most commonly used to declare a settlement as a civilization was first proposed by British historian and archaeologist V. Gordon Child. For a group to be considered a civilization, they must have a writing system, practice domestication and show signs of surplus agriculture, have an increase in population, sedentism, meaning that they stayed in the same spot, and urbanism, have and use complex technology, practice craft specialization, meaning that not everyone was a farmer, practice trade and interregional economy, meaning that they traded with others outside the civilization, have social stratification, there were economic classes, have state-level political organization, show monumental art and architecture, practice institutionalized religion, have standard weights and measurements, and practice symbolic record-keeping. This long list can be shortened to the idea that a civilization is a group of people who have come together and created a common culture filled with language, rules, customs, and tradition to guide one's life and provide collective benefit. The world's first highly complex civilizations and states include Mesopotamia, Egypt, the Indus Valley Civilization, China, Olmec Civilization, Teotihuacan and the Aztec, and the Wari, Tiwanaku, and Inca. Because this podcast will only run to the end of this college semester, I will not be talking about each of these, but will pick one to focus on for each episode. The last thing I want to discuss in this theory section of this episode is the breakdown of group categories. These categories are used to frame the characteristics of people groups in history. The smallest category is a band. This group is usually no more than 50 people, is typically mobile, forages for food, and is often egalitarian. There may or may not be institutionalized religion, but this largely depends on the group. People groups of 100 plus are typically called tribes. Many are semi-sedentary, usually have a leadership structure with social and kinship organizations, with shamans as a specialized job. Beyond this, there are chiefdoms, which typically have over a thousand people, have a permanent location, practice agriculture, begin to exhibit stratification, and often have leadership that is divine and hereditary. After chiefdoms, people groups that follow the criteria listed previously are known as civilizations. This brings us to Mesopotamia, meaning between two rivers. The lands flanked by the Tigris and Euphrates had rich soil for the beginnings of agriculture. Before the rise of civilization in this area, many farmers of Southwest Asia were living in thousands of small villages spanning Afghanistan to Turkey. Around 8500 BC is when the first changes began to happen. People at Jericho had begun constructing walls and residential buildings reflecting some class differences. 
Similar processes were also happening in Turkey. These places, Jericho, Çatalhöyük, and Jarmo, provide a glance into life right before the large civilization came to be. These settlements had architecture, some trade, art, and most importantly, agriculture allowing for some specialization of labor. As with agriculture, pottery in this area seems to have developed independently in multiple places and then spread. This is likely because of an increasing need for containers to hold extra food. By about 5500 BC, two distinct pottery styles can be seen. Tracking pottery through settlements shows connections between small villages present in the area. By 4500 BC, the high degree of similarity in ceramics found shows possible centralization. Larger villages with varying degrees of control likely existed leading up to the formation of city-states. Known as the Uruk period, the time from 4100 BC to 3000 BC pushes these small villages into a civilization. Uruk itself was one of the oldest cities in the world and possibly the center of one of the earliest states. In 3000 BC, with a population of roughly 50,000 people, Uruk had residential architecture reflecting class status, pottery reflecting stratification, and by the middle of the 4th millennium BC, the population included specialists in arts and crafts. Growing to be an impressive settlement of residences and several large temples, Uruk displayed the high status and wealth of the upper class through its huge construction projects. The early dynastic period, from around 3000 to 2350 BC, 13 city-states formed the Sumerian civilization. These city-states shared culture with one another, but politically were individual. The lives of those in these city-states is clearly documented by the emergence of writing, called cuneiform. If you aren't familiar with this type of writing, it might be helpful to look up a picture of it. This writing is made by pressing ends of reeds into wet clay, leaving marks. The role played by writing in early Mesopotamian society is mostly economic. In this time of shared culture but political independence, the people of Sumer also had a common system of religion. This religion dictated much of daily life and had many gods representing all aspects of the world the Sumerians depended upon. The rise of kings was quickly incorporated into the religion. Following the establishment of city-states, Sumer entered into a period of dynastic rule with power changing hands often and warfare between city-states. The expansion of rule by kings and the rise of the Babylonian dynasty only encouraged war in the region. Hammurabi, king of Babylon, reigned for 43 years and under his rule, Babylon was a center for intellectual pursuit. Among his accomplishments was the Hammurabi Code, a set of laws. Among the sources, I have included a link to one translation of Hammurabi's code, if you're interested. The code is actually pretty cool, and includes some of the origins for common phrases used today. For example, if a man put out the eye of another man, his eye shall be put out, is probably better recognized as an eye for an eye. This code sets standards for commerce, fines, and punishments that met the requirements of justice. While this period of greatness did not last, and around 331 BC, the Mesopotamian civilization was brought under Hellenistic rule, many established concepts created by this civilization remain important to the current world. Urbanization, the wheel, writing, a good portion of science and agricultural development can all be traced back to the land between two rivers. <laughs> Before I go into the life history of Gertrude Bell, I just wanted to mention why I am including a section for women archaeologists in this podcast. 
The main reason is that, as with any piece of history, women can be easily overlooked. The few women present in the archaeological field by the mid to late 1800s were given less academic credit than their male colleagues. Despite the male control of the field, women have made significant, if devalued, contributions to archaeology. If you scroll through lists of famous archaeologists, there's a strong chance that most of the people on that list are men. While the demographics of archaeology have been shifting, there are many things that may push women out of the field that have less of an impact on men. And I think it's important to spend time discussing women who have played roles in shaping archaeological history and, more importantly, defied the expectations of their time to find fulfillment in the things that they chose to do. Gertrude Bell was born to a rich family in England. Her grandfather's wealth, in addition to her father's successful career, allowed Bell to attend Queen's College, an all-girls school in London, when she was 15. Her intellect and recommendations from professors resulted in Bell's continuing education at Oxford beginning in 1886. Completing her studies in just two years, Bell was the only woman to have ever taken a first in modern history, the greatest academic achievement that could be awarded to a student. It's key to note that Bell's travels following her education and extending throughout her life were owed not just to her intelligence and determination, but also to the money and influence of her family. The connections she had access to as a member of a high-class family allowed her to visit at many French and British embassies. Bell's first contact with the Middle East happened when she was 24. In preparation, she learned Farsi, adding the language to an already impressive list including French, German, Persian, Hindustani, and Japanese. This first brush with the land led her back again in 1899 when her passion for archaeology began. Between 1905 and 1914, Bell's travels through the Middle East were structured around archaeological study. Traveling the lands, staying in tents, and riding long days through the desert, Bell carefully recorded the ancient sites and buildings and was often the first European to see a site and report it back to scholars in England. Her two biggest credits were her work in the field and her role in establishing the Iraq National Museum in Baghdad, where she also wrote the country's first antiquity laws. While Bell never participated in a true excavation, due to the fact that she was a single woman and also her own want for independence, Bell's contributions to the field, maps, pictures, and writing cannot be overlooked. A lot of her work continues to be used today in checking accuracy of current work. In addition to her archaeological pursuits, Bell's knowledge of the Middle East was critical in the creation of an autonomous Arab state. She was invited to work in Baghdad for the Arab Bureau and was the only woman in a cabinet of men. Her familiarity with the Arabic language, desert tribes, factions, leaders, and geography provided strategic information to the British military. Bell's work was also critical for increasing the scholarly recognition of Iraq. Ancient Mesopotamia, the oldest known civilization, showed that Iraq was the source of serious archaeological information. Bell's best-known work for the new government of Iraq can be seen through her work on the Law of Antiquities. This law, enacted in 1924, aimed to end unchecked looting and plundering that was happening to the ancient sites in Iraq. Additionally, it held the idea that results from excavation be published so that all could benefit from the discoveries of the region's rich history. In Bell's late 50s, her obligations in Baghdad had ended, and financial strain had begun to place a limit on how much further she could travel. In July 1926, she was found dead just a few days shy of her 58th birthday. She was buried in Baghdad in a small cemetery, and both Baghdad and Britain grieved the loss of Gertrude Bell. 
The fortune she had left was gifted to the Iraq Museum. Thanks for listening to today's episode. This has been Women of the Field by me, your host, Mackenzie Edmonds. I hope you enjoyed today's topic and maybe learned a little something along the way. Sources used in writing today's episode are listed in the description. Join me next week for another ancient civilization and another brief biography. I'll see you on Monday.